it's your host, Dimitri, and this is episode four of This is the Revolution. I've replaced talking in the military coup. It's very okay. I promise this. Is this offensive? I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Hi, this is Aki, and this is episode four of This is the Revolution. Just super glad that you are listening. That's dope. One day I, I won't care as much. Right now, I'm still like, oh my God, do they still care about me? God, please, the show is great. Um, yeah, so this episode is going to be fun. Going to push a little bit of the limits of what this show is about and shock people maybe a little bit. And yeah, so I'm very excited. And also want to send a shout out to the Afro-Socialist Organizing Project in Philadelphia, also known as ASOP. I love y'all. Y'all are dope. Hope to see y'all soon. And happy birthday, Lil. Yeah, let's do this thing. So this episode is about Legend of Korra. Once again, it's it's on a streaming platform right now. And I really want to get some views or listens. Listens. I want to get some listens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, created by Michael Dante DiMartino, Brian Konietzko. And for people who don't know, this is the sequel show to Avatar The Last Airbender. You don't actually have to have watched Avatar to watch Legend of Korra, though it's, it's helpful if you did for a lot of context. And it also just feels better. But anyway, this takes place 70 years after the events of Avatar The Last Airbender. The world is still populated by benders, people who can control the elements of their nation of origin and their four nations of origin, the Fire Nation, the Earth Kingdom, the Water Tribes, and the Airbenders. And at this point in history, there are actually more Airbenders. In the original show, the Airbenders are victims of a genocide, and there's only one left. At this point, Aang, the main character of the last show, has a bunch of descendants who are now able to now airbend and control the wind and air. So as usual, there exists an avatar in this world. The avatar serves as the connection between the spirit realm and the human realm, and they can bend all four elements like everyone else. And avatars are reincarnated. So after the death of Avatar Aang, um, the hero of the last series, a new avatar named Korra is born. And Korra is the main character of this show. She's a Southern Water Tribe child uh, who was discovered to be the Avatar at a really young age. And she is really different than Aang in the sense that, one, she is kind of better in terms of bending in the sense that she mastered the elements faster than Aang did and mastered three elements by the time she was like five or six. Uh, She's also really hot-headed, which I love. She gets angry all the time and often uses violence to solve her problems before she even considers conversation, which I feel like is just a good juxtaposition with Aang's very chill, peaceful, literal, you know, monk-like sensitivity. Um, It's just nice to have a main character who's kind of crass and brash and just says a lot of what's on her mind and fucks up a lot too, which is great. And I feel like she's sometimes easier to relate to than Aang, even though Aang is like someone to aspire to be, even though he has his faults too. But Korra's is very human, and I love that about her.
So I'm going to cover season three, episode 10, Long Live the Queen. So Korra has been captured by soldiers of the current queen of the Earth Kingdom. And this is way, 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 way after the Earth Kingdom that we know. And Korra is being transported in an airship to Ba Sing Se, the capital of the Earth Kingdom. The Earth Queen holds a grudge against Korra, is really mad at Korra for recently freeing a bunch of prisoners that the Queen was trying to turn into a secret army. So while Korra is captured, two other members of Team Avatar, Bolin and Mako, have also been captured by an anarchist organization called the Red Lotus. So the Red Lotus is a secret order aimed at ending all governments on the planet and ending all nations and restoring the world to a state of chaos. They seek to do this by either converting the Avatar to their side and winning them over, or maybe that's something they just say, or just straight up killing the Avatar. So they've been trying to kidnap Korra since she was a little kid to like raise her and to become a revolutionary anarchist. This way they could end the Avatar's role in maintaining order and balance, which, you know, in their defense, the Avatar's call for order and balance usually actually plays out in maintaining the status quo and protecting whichever world order these are born into. So the Red Lotus is still trying to capture Avatar Korra. They've all broken out of prison recently and are trying to go back to their original mission. So they go to the Earth Queen to negotiate with her and offer her information about the um, the prisoners that Avatar Korra helped release in trade for Korra herself. So the leader of the Red Lotus, an airbender named Zaheer, wins the Earth Queen over by explaining how her capture of Korra could easily lead into an international disaster, an international incident, and the world would just turn on her and be like, why did you capture the Avatar? And so the Red Lotus could take Korra off their hands um, or off the hands of the Earth Queen, dispose of Korra, and thus get rid of Korra for the Earth Queen, while the Earth Queen isn't responsible for it at all and kind of gets away with it. And the Earth Queen also gets all the information that she wants about her missing prisoners and her secret army. So everyone basically gets what they want. And the, uh, the Earth Queen agrees and the Red and Lotus are given VIP treatment at the Royal Court while they're waiting for the arrival of Korra. So unbeknownst to them, Korra's actually escaped captivity at this point and crashed the airship in the desert. Eventually, the Red Lotus overhears of Korra's escape and they just barge into the throne room and announce that, you know, the... The Earth Queen no longer has her bargaining chip. The Earth Queen is just mad that these people, these lowlifes, have been snooping on her and sends her secret police, the Dai Li, to attack them. So the Red Lotus quickly defeats her guards and Zaheer approaches the queen at her throne. And the Earth Queen is like screaming and is like, you wouldn't dare attack me. You want to attack a queen? And Zaheer is like, LOL, like, I don't give a about queens. Um... And he goes on this speech explaining how their power is irrelevant. And he uses airbending to suck the air out of her lungs, which is pretty brutal for a kid's show, and kills her that way by essentially choking her to death. The Red Lotus sees the intercom system for the entire city, 
and announced that the queen has been killed and that the city is now free. They destroy the walls of Ba Sing Se and the walls separate the different economic sections of the city from like poor to middle class to wealthy and allow the middle class and poor people to enter the rich parts of the city. And the poor people are just like, yes, Um, everyone rejoices. And the working people of the city seize upon the situation and begin burning and looting the homes of the royal and wealthy. uh, Prisoners are released across the city. The city is thrown into pretty beautiful chaos. And even the guards end up stepping down and being like, yeah, like, you know, screw this. Like, we want to be part of the uprising. So the episode ends with a radio transmission declaring that the city as we know it has fallen, which I'm perfectly okay with, to be honest. So the theory I want to cover today is going to be probably one of my most controversial. It's a concept of the propaganda of the deed, uh, specifically left-wing assassinations. So this concept has been talked about by many people, particularly anarchists, including Mikhail Bakunin, the father of anarchism, in the same way we think about Karl Marx as the father of communism. And I also want to talk about anarchism here a little bit, because I think this show doesn't really do justice to anarchism. Anarchism is often treated as like this chaotic existence or this chaotic ideology when it's actually a deep and complex philosophy um, that is almost the opposite of chaos. It, It seeks to create a world in which all people are free and willingly share the bounty of the planet together, in which coercion, forced labor, and even the concept of borders separating humans um, really, those things don't exist anymore. And if you think about it, borders mainly benefit wealthy people within countries. Like wealthy people can pretty much go anywhere. Their goods can pretty much go anywhere on the planet, but most poor people can't do that. And borders are great for isolating poor people and ensuring that you can pay them as little as humanly possible within your borders. That is a big point of borders. And to also kind of, you know, convince them that they're better than other poor people on the planet so that they don't kill you. Anarchism is also seen by a lot of people, and I would argue it's actually the end goal of communism, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, the, the point of socialism, um, as we know it, is really to get to a state of communism, which is like this stateless society, this borderless society in which all humans share together and love on each other and have more free time to do cool stuff like make memes and podcasts. (laughs) So this theory of propaganda of the deed and left-wing assassinations in particular is founded in a belief that capitalism itself is an inherently violent system, that a child starving or a woman forced to stay with an abusive husband because of a lack of free housing were all forms of violence imparted by nations who prioritize the wants of the few and the, specifically the wealthy over the needs of the many. So violence against the system is inherently justified by a lot of uh, left-wing theorists. And I don't fully disagree with that, though I think it's a little bit more complicated. And the idea of propaganda of the deed is to spread the message of the movement by action and not just words, by deed. And its purpose here is to show that the system is, one, vulnerable and can be attacked. The system isn't God. And that was especially important when the system was monarchies that utilized divine right or the idea that they were an extension of God as their justification for ruling people. Two, 
it wants to create disruption and cause a system to be suddenly shocked into instability. And three, it wants to inspire further action and lead to the overthrow of a system, whether that overthrowing be nonviolent or violent itself. So they might use violent means to trigger the revolution, but it's not necessarily like inherently going to be a fully violent or nonviolent revolution. And that dichotomy between nonviolence and violence is actually complicated and potentially unnecessary. Uh, we should be talking more about specifics, but I'm not going to go into that yet. And the main guiding principle here is that the target of the assassination of the, of the deed should be someone who is symbolic and wields power and preferably is already hated by much of the public. So we're always thinking about polarization here and thinking about public perception, no matter if we're talking about nonviolence or violence. The idea is that you want to find someone or like people want to find someone. I'm not telling anyone to do this. Um, that is already hated by much of the public. So you're not killing someone who the public is going to be like, oh my God, I love that person. That person was so chill. What? Why would they do that? And you'll notice that a lot of this is similar to strategic property destruction, which is arguably a form of propaganda of the deed. But I separate them here. Um, that propaganda of the deed is more ideologically driven and more organized and thought out by a group of revolutionaries and also considers murder as acceptable where property destruction, once again, is literally about destroying things. So yeah, we see the propaganda of the deed here and it's pretty explicit, which I love. Uh, the Red Lotus talks about it out loud. They plan on murdering all of the ruling leaders on the planet with hopes that it will inspire more action and inspire an uprising. Even after Zaheer kills the Earth Queen, he doesn't really take credit for it as an individual or as even a movement. His main focus is to inspire the people to take action into their own hands. And, oh no, part of my ceiling just fell. God damn it. Landlords are horrible. I hate landlords. God. But anyway, yeah, someone killed their landlord with a sword recently. That person, that case was hyper complicated. Um, it's not necessarily propaganda of the deed, uh, but worth mentioning. Fuck landlords, but we probably shouldn't kill landlords, I guess. And um, yeah, so in this case, the the point of the murder of the Earth Queen was to get other people to take action, which was a success. The city of Ba Sing Se rose up. And the idea is to do that everywhere on the planet. That's what the Red Lotus is hoping for. And in the long run, it does lead, this is a minor spoiler, not really. Um, it leads to the complete shattering of the Earth Kingdom into over a dozen separate different states. So yeah, it's pretty wild. But unlike real anarchists, the Red Lotus doesn't really seem interested in building a new world themselves or building a new world based on mutual aid and shared prosperity. They merely wanted to create the chaos necessary for a new undefined world to be born. So one of the earliest attempts of the assassination style of propaganda of the deed was a late 19th century socialist organization or leftist organization um, called Narodnaya Volya in Russia, or the People's Will. 
So the People's World was created after a split of a larger organization, specifically around whether or not political assassinations were even worthwhile. So those that believe that the assassinations were worth doing uh, created People's Will and started plotting the murder of the current emperor, the ruler of Russia, Tsar Alexander II. So our Tsar Alexander was known as being a great reformer and believed that he could hold on to power by giving concessions to the serfs. He wasn't necessarily like a great guy. He was just smart enough to be like, oh, snap, there's a bunch of revolutions going on in Europe. I, I, I bet I bet to prevent that from happening here. So earlier in the century, he actually freed the serfs. Um, so for people who don't know, serfs were peasants, slightly a step up from being slaves they worked and died on the land that they were tied to from birth with most of their profits um, and the, the goods that they produced, usually like farm goods, wheat, all that good stuff, um, went towards their landowners and the czar. And much like how slavery wasn't really ended in the United States, really ever, which is a longer conversation, uh, prison system, um, the way we treat a lot of undocumented workers, how we've sent a lot of our labor overseas to places with intense sweatshop labor and still literal slavery. We can't even make chocolate without child slavery. And people are like, capitalism's great. It's the best system ever. But anyway, much like how slavery wasn't really ended in the United States um, immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation or even after uh, Juneteenth, um, Alexander's Declaration really didn't fully end slavery or serfdom. Like serfs still work the same land and we're now free to owe money to their landlords for working on the land, similar to the system of sharecropping that followed slavery in the United States and held black people in bondage for another generation. So people's will was like that. They decided to kill Alexander II. And after a couple failed attempts, finally hatched the master plan. They bought a cheese factory on a major road, often trafficked by the czar and his entourage, and dug a, a tunnel underneath the road, I shit you not, and planted bombs that go off the next time the czar crossed over. So while the czar was crossing over in his carriage, um, at the last minute, the czar changed course and avoided the bomb. But the plot's ringleader, Sofia Perovskaya, had a backup plan. A series of bomb throwers descended upon the czar and attacked him and after a few attempts, managed to mortally wound the czar and many others, including the assassin himself. And the czar went on to die at home in the Winter Palace. So the czar was succeeded by his son, Alexander III, you know, great name, I guess, uh, who wasn't a reformer by any means and undid many of his father's reforms and also cracked down on activists at the time uh, and the Jewish population specifically. And... Um, this drew more ire and anger against him, which was met with more assassination plots. And one of the would-be assassins was actually uh, the older brother of a boy who would later be called Vladimir Lenin, um, the, the father of the Soviet Union, because everything has fathers, I guess. Um, so Lenin's brother was executed for being part of the assassination plot which many believe led to the further radicalization of a young Lenin, who then, you know, continued to be radicalized in university, which he was expelled from later that year. Um, so while Alexander's assassination didn't lead to an immediate revolution, it arguably helped create further polarization in the society that later made revolution possible. 
Um, that's all complicated and it's hard to really draw a straight line. But what it did clearly succeed at was helping to grow the international left movement and inspired a lot of new organizations to be created, particularly new organizations that were built around assassinating world leaders, which led to a bunch of assassination attempts in the United States, even from uh, attempts on the Rockefellers uh, to the eventual assassination of President Garfield. Lasagna. That's probably inappropriate. I'm so sorry. A more recent example was the attempted firebombing in vehicles and buildings owned by ICE, the Immigration's Custom Enforcement uh, Agency, the agency responsible for capturing and imprisoning undocumented immigrants into what can literally be called concentration camps, like legally, um, is illegally, but yeah, whatever. More so that if you look at the definition of a concentration camp, we have them in the United States. In fact, we've had them for quite a long time. And the attack was carried out by a man named Willem van Sprossen, a 69-year-old carpenter, which is a great occupation for an activist to have, um, with anarchist and anti-fascist ideological leaning. In his manifesto, he explained that he felt morally compelled to take action against the concentration camps and hoped that he could inspire others to act morally and end the crisis unfolding before our eyes. The attack came the day before a planned national raid by ICE to capture human beings across the country and place them into cages. So this example is a little tricky. The, the action obviously uh, it failed to inspire more action, was not clearly an act of assassination, and may better fit into the sabotage category. Um, it, it, I'm not really sure if it failed to inspire action. I just haven't seen much come out of it. And I think that's a big part of that. A lot of people just don't even know that it happened, much like the attempted assassination of Republican leadership in 2017 at a baseball game. For whatever reason, reason the news just didn't seem to cover it that much, which I'm like, all right, whatever. Um, it's probably for the best in the grand scheme. Um, and the reality is the United States left, despite a lot of the rhetoric uh, from people like Donald Trump and even Joe Biden, even Joe Biden, who am I, what am I, what am I saying? You know, he's, he's trash too, but different kind of trash, I guess. And yeah, I'm not going to go into that. There's another episode about that. Yeah. Um, the left has pretty much abandoned violent tactics overall due to the general conservative nature of the American public. Like the American public will accept concentration camps, but God forbid, if you, if you shoot someone who started a concentration camp, you've, you've gone too far. Um, but yeah, the, the American public just doesn't seem to like left-wing political violence at all. Um, and the left has turned away from political violence despite a lot of the narratives around them. Um, and Vance Bronson was killed in the action and his name pretty much disappeared uh, for a lot of people. Um, and disappeared into history. So yeah, it was hard to find modern examples of this, probably because the, the strategy has been explicitly abandoned by a good amount of the left decades ago. Uh, the polarization that comes from assassinations, it's, it's really hard to control. And you know, a good example of that is the murder of Franz Ferdinand, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand that led to World War One, where the assassin, you know, Princep probably was not trying to start World War One. Though arguably World War One did end up some, you know, somewhat leading towards the Russian Revolution 
um, which a lot of leftists would definitely celebrate as a good, inherently good thing. And yeah, I would say the Russian Revolution in 1917 was inherently a good thing um, in the grand scheme of the world. And also what Russia could have been, a right-wing authoritarian Russia during World War II would have been horrible for the world. And we'd all probably be, you know, in some weird Nazi Russian society right now um, because the Russians and the communists are why, you know, we collectively won World War II against fascism. But anyway, yeah, um, the left has really abandoned it because of that polarization and the hard to control nature of assassinations, but also because now the most dominant oppressive institutions that have the most power on the planet are liberal capitalist democracies. And while they can arguably be just as bad as more openly authoritarian systems with their concentration camps, with their genocide, with their repression, they're often seen as more legitimate because of the voting mechanisms, whether or not they're effective voting mechanisms. Um, and so violence against them isn't seen as justified in the same way as against authoritarians or monarchies. And I don't really think we're at a point in history where assassinations make sense for a lot of reasons I touched upon in the rioting episodes, but even more so here, it seems really unstable and unpredictable. And yeah, I mean, leftists have killed rich capitalists and that might work better in our conditions as um, the natural trajectory of, you know, uh, income inequality is going to anger a lot of people, but that kind of thing is, you know, probably better done after a revolution. Not saying that we should do it. I'm just saying that if people are going to do it, you know, don't do it in a way that will actually screw over other oppressed people, like how it did end up impacting Jewish people in Russia. Um, yeah. Controversial statements, whatever. You love it. You love it. You're here for it. Um, damn, that's it. So yeah, I'm not going to encourage anything in this episode. I'm trying to think of an organization to connect to. Uh, yeah, I just think people should spend a little bit of time reading about how the government has assassinated people. Um, the opposite of this. So looking into COINTELPRO, C-O-I-N-T-E-L-P-R-O, an FBI program that I'm going to talk about a lot and how the FBI has assassinated left-leaning activists in this country um, and utilizes assassination themselves. And the thing I will encourage is you donating to this podcast. Yeah, check out podcast. Yeah, donate, please. It'll be cool. Um, give me money. So in case I get sued or, you know, get arrested for saying some stuff on here that's considered inciting something, I can I, I can I can have a lawyer. And also I need to buy cashews because cashews are so expensive. Yeah, thank you all. Have a wonderful revolution. The United States Senate is literally a white supremacist organization formed to protect the power of slaveholders. All states should not have two senators. That doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if you're trying to protect the power of slaveholders. The United States is not a true democracy in a lot of ways, but that's definitely one of the big ones. Think about it.